Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Well, all right, guys, we're going to continue our study in the book of Mark. We're calling it the Simple Gospel. We're taking about 60 weeks or so, and we're walking verse by verse, line by line, through the Gospel of Mark, and we're taking a look at who Jesus is, what he does, and what it means for us to follow him in the everyday stuff of our life. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 14 today, and the big idea is that Jesus begins his ministry. And so we're going to be looking at how Jesus started his ministry, which really got me wondering and thinking about Redemption Church and when we first started. Redemption Church is two years old. In the past two years, we have seen Jesus do some absolutely amazing, incredible things. How many of you, you've been coming to Redemption for about three months, right? Somebody? Good. How many of you have been coming about six months to a year? How many of you have been since the beginning, since two years? Yeah, it's incredible to see what Jesus has done in the life of our church just in the last two years or so. Just this year alone, we've grown 33%. We have two services. We have 56 people who serve on a weekly basis on our serve team. We have four community groups. They are just packed. We're looking for new leaders so that way we can multiply and we can launch new community groups. I mean, every single week, it's incredible. People keep showing up. People keep coming back. People keep inviting their friends, and they keep meeting Jesus. And God has done great things in the life of their church, but this really only started with eight people in a living room. That over the last two years, God has been faithful to the prayers, to the hard work, to the blood, sweat, tears, the generosity, the servant attitude and heart of eight people who prayed to launch the church, and here we are because of Jesus. But you need to know that if you're a part of Redemption Church, you're actually a part of something much larger than what's happening in this room. That there may be about 125, 150 of us in these four walls that call Redemption Home that are part of this church, but there is billions, three billion people on four corners of the planet who worship Jesus as their Lord, that we may be a local church, but this is the global church. That the global church is on every continent, every country, every civilization, every tongue, every tribe, every type of person. That there are people who love and worship and serve Jesus Christ as their Lord. That this might be a local church, but this, that, that is the global church in which we're a part of. And there has never been a movement on the history of the world that is, has been on par or equal to the church. It is unlike anything that the world has ever seen. That the church is made up of people from all times, all places, all races, ethnicities, incomes, socioeconomic backgrounds and upbringings who love and worship and serve Jesus Christ as their Lord. And some estimate that there are upwards of 10 billion people since Jesus began his ministry who have professed faith in Christ as their savior. 10 billion people with the B. And so my question, what I want us to think about and what us to consider is this, where did it all get started? Right? How did we get here? Where did all of this, where did all of this come from? And so we're going to look at our family history, our lineage, our legacy, where we come from in Christianity. And today we're going to see how Jesus begins his public ministry. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 14, and we're going to see Jesus launch his ministry, call his disciples, and cast a big vision for why he is here and what he has to accomplish. 
Here's what we see in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, so that is John the Baptist. So John was arrested. Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let me just go ahead and pause right here for a sec. Whenever Mark says, now, after John was arrested, what he is doing is he is providing a transition statement because much of what has happened so far in Mark is focused in a geographical location. So John gets arrested, there's a transition. Mark in his gospel, while he's writing, he's not so concerned about the, the chronology, but rather the geography. That it's not written in a chronological order, but rather it's the places that which Jesus has entered into. So, so far everything has happened in this area known as Judea, but now there's this transition into Galilee, that it was focused on John's ministry, but now it transitions into Jesus' ministry. Some commentators say that there's about a six-month gap between Jesus' baptism and Jesus' beginning, that John's arrested, John's thrown into prison, Jesus comes along, he's on the scene, he comes preaching, he comes proclaiming a similar uh, message, a similar manner that John did, and he says to repent and to believe. So there's a transition, and we pick up in verse 16 as Jesus keeps preaching and ministering and teaching and traveling, and then he comes along into the Sea of Galilee. He sees Simon and Andrew. We're going to talk about them. He sees Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting their net in the sea, and they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going a little bit further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. We're going to talk about those guys in a sec as well, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. Now, I told you at the very beginning that what we're going to be looking at today is we're going to be tracing the lineage, the legacy, the, the family history of Christianity. Where did all of this come from? How did we get here? Where did all of this get started? How did Jesus begin? And what you're going to notice is that sometimes the most significant moments have very simple beginnings that the most significant moments have very simple beginnings because Jesus begins his ministry in a very humble and in a very simple way. And if you want to do anything great, there's a couple of things that you're going to need. The first thing you need to do is you need to have the right vision. Okay, what is it that you want to accomplish? What is the reason? What is the goal? What is the hope? What is the purpose? Why did Jesus come? What is the vision that Jesus is going to be teaching over. So you need to start with the right vision. The second thing is you need to have the right people, that you need to get people around you that would surround you, that would encourage you, that would love, help, serve, and that would get the work done. They would work with you, journey with you, be on mission with you. You need to find the right people. So Jesus starts, he has a vision, but then we're going to see that he begins to call people. But what you need, more importantly, is you need to have the right leader because everything rises and falls on leadership. Okay, if you have the people and you have the vision, but you have the wrong leader, okay, you're going to end up in some wrong places very fast. Because you can have vision and you can have people, but if there is no leader, then that's, that ship is going to sink before it ever even sets sail. So you need to make sure that you have all three of these working together, and that's exactly what Mark shows us. Jesus has each one of these three variables working together in harmony and unison because Jesus has vision, Jesus calls the right people, and Jesus is the right leader, the one in which we follow. And now we're five weeks into Mark's gospel, 
and yet we've yet to hear a single word from Jesus. Has anybody noticed that? That up until this point, Jesus has not even said a single word five weeks in. And then all of a sudden, he comes along on the scene. And that he's, he, he's traveling, he's teaching, that he picks up where John leaves off. He comes into Galilee. He's preaching, he's proclaiming. And in these first verses, we see Jesus' first sermon as he calls his first disciples. And he preaches his favorite subject and topic. Here's what we see as we see Jesus' vision. That Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming. That means he's preaching, he's teaching, he's championing, he is heralding the good news of God. And he is saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now if I were to ask you this question, what was Jesus' favorite subject? What would you say? If Jesus were to, to preach one topic... What do you think he preached on more than any other topic? If Jesus were to come into redemption and he was to preach a sermon, right? And you go, oh, Jesus is here. He's going to preach. What is Jesus going to preach on? The one topic, the one subject, the one thing that Jesus taught on more than anything else. What would you say that it is? Some of you, you were raised Southern Baptist. Okay, I love my SBC brothers and sisters. Welcome. We're glad to have you. And you would be like, oh, I know. They taught me this in Sunday school. It's definitely the cross. Like, that's, that's the goal, that's the purpose, that's the reason. Jesus came for the cross. It has to be the cross, and he taught on the cross. Okay, actually, that's, that's not it, right? The cross is important. The cross is significant. The cross is central, right? But that's the means to the end. That is not the ultimate vision in which Jesus came. It's the way he accomplishes it, but it's not the reason that Jesus came. So it's, it's, it's not the cross, okay? We love your Sunday school teacher, but eh, not so much, okay? Some of you, others, you were raised... Um, you were raised non-denominational or evangelical. And you would come and you'd say, no, no, I know the answer. It's love, it's grace, it's kindness, it's tolerance, it's acceptance. It, it, that's what it is. It's, it's to treat others the way that you would want to be treated. It's to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the reason that Jesus came. In fact, it's not. In fact, love um, is actually taught less than Jesus teaches on money and hell combined. Okay, and, and in the Gospels, Jesus never one time says the word grace. You can read it. It's not in there. Jesus never even says the word grace. So it's not love and it's not grace. That's actually not the message that Jesus preached on more than anything else either. And then others of you, you were raised like me. Right? You're raised in a Pentecostal charismatic tradition. And so when you hear it, you're like, oh, I know what the answer is. You raise your hand, you're charismatic. You raise both hands. You're like, okay, I know what the answer is. I, I was taught, okay, it, it's about authority. It's about dominion. It's about power. It's about healing and miracles. The Holy Spirit, okay? Put your tambourine down because that's not it either. The one subject that Jesus taught on more than anything else was the kingdom of God. Jesus teaches on the kingdom of God more than any other subject. In fact, he preaches on it 126 times throughout the Gospels. It's this huge mega theme. You're going to read it pretty much on every single page in the Gospel of Mark, but it also extends and permeates through every single page in your Bible. It doesn't just start in Mark. It goes all the way back to Genesis. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, he spoke it into existence. That as God speaks heaven and earth, it comes into existence. That is a king's decree. Because what the king says is what happens. So even creation is kingly language. Whenever Jesus, or rather God, he gives dominion to our first parents, Adam and Eve, okay, that is kingly language. We also see it with 
Exodus, as God delivers people from, from their bondage and from their slavery, He turns them into a kingdom of priests. Okay, that's that kingly language. He establishes them as a nation. That's kingly language. We see it with David. As God comes and enacts a covenant with him saying, through you, I'm going to, I'm going to make a kingdom that shall know no end. That's his kingly language. We also see it through the prophets. We see it through Isaiah. We see it in Amos. We see it in Daniel. We see it in Malachi. All of this kingly language. It's throughout the gospels. And the full picture of the kingdom of God is realized in the book of Revelation when you see Jesus high and exalted, that he is seated on a throne because Jesus is the king. And this is the picture of the kingdom of God. That's Jesus' ultimate vision and the purpose and reason in which he came for the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of, what is the kingdom of God? And I find it really interesting that the one subject that Jesus teaches on more than anything else is overlooked and underemphasized in the life of the church. That Jesus would teach on this 126 times, but we oftentimes, we don't really focus on it. We tend to focus on heaven at the exclusion of the kingdom of God. And I really begin to wonder and think about why do we not understand or talk about the kingdom of God as a church? If Jesus talked on it more than anything else, why don't we talk about it very much? Why don't we understand it? And then I kind of like, kind of realized, and not to get political or anything, but I think it's really just because we're American. Right? In America, we don't understand kings, and we don't understand kingdoms. In America, we don't even like kings, and we definitely don't like kingdoms. Our whole nation was founded in a rebellion against a kingdom, right? We're like, I don't like looking at you. You're not my king anymore. We're going to start our own government. And we're going to start our own country and our own revolution. And we're going to do our own thing because we like to be autonomous. We don't like to be under any sort of authority. We don't really like kings. And so we don't understand kings. And the closest thing that we can correlate to a kingdom or a king is that of our president. And even then, the president, he's elected every four years. And if you don't think he's doing a good enough job, well, you can just vote to kick him out, get somebody else in to mess everything up. But you can still do that because a president's elected, but a king... Now, a king is determined. A king is determined by birth. When the king is the king, the king is the king, and there's, there's not a thing you can do about it because he's the king. What the king says, well, that's what you do. When the king moves, okay, that's what you do. Right? What, the king, what the king decrees, that's what you obey because that's what it means to have a king, and that's what it means to live in a kingdom. And so in America, when we read these things about kings and kingdoms, we're like, I don't really understand that. I don't really get that because we don't... We don't live in that same cultural understanding. But one cannot read the pages of the Bible without being confronted with this understanding that Jesus is a king and that he has a kingdom. So what is the kingdom of God? The basic standard definition of the kingdom of God is this. God's rule and reign made evident in the world around us. That God is sovereign. God is king. Abraham Kuyper um, a, a philosopher, he says, there is not one square inch of this universe that God does not declare as mine, that God rules and reigns over all of creation, over all existence, over all times, all places, all people, that God is sovereign and that he rules and reigns. And when his sovereignty, when his rule and his reign breaks forth into our everyday life, 
when it is made visible and tangible and touchable, when it is made evident. That's what we call the kingdom of God. When God's rule breaks forth in your everyday life, that's what we call the kingdom of God. And so literally everything that Jesus did was to reveal the kingdom of God. Whenever Jesus came and he preached, he was revealing the kingdom of God, that the kingdom is here, that it's real, that it's evident, that it is with you and it is around you and it is in you. When Jesus came to teach, he's revealing the kingdom of God. His rule and reign is evident in the world. When Jesus performs miracles and heals the sick, when Jesus casts out demons, he is revealing the kingdom of God in this world. When Jesus loves the outcasts and the orphans and the widows and the homeless and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the lepers, that is Jesus showing us what the kingdom of God looks like and that the kingdom of God is to break forth into this world. When Jesus goes to the cross where he dies in our place, the substitutionary death for our sins, he gives his life as a ransom as he hangs on that cross. That is Jesus' way of showing us this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is the way that the kingdom of God is going to be revealed into this world, made evident. Everything Jesus did was to reveal the kingdom of God. The unfolding of scriptures, the fullness of redemptive history. Jesus comes preaching. Jesus comes proclaiming. Jesus comes saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the moment that you have been looking for. This is the moment that you have been longing for. This is the moment that you have been anticipating and waiting. Everything that you long for is here. It's at hand. It is near. The kingdom of God is now. The problem is, we're not now people. We're later people. Isn't that true? We're not now people. We're later people. The kingdom of God is now. Uh, but I'll worry about that later. I'll get around to that later. I'll do that later. I'll fix that later. Oh, yeah, I'll do that later. The kingdom is now, but you and I, we tend to be, we tend to be later people. And this is the reason that I think that we focus so much on heaven in the church. Because heaven is later. Right? Give your life to Jesus, and when you die, you'll go to heaven. Okay? What happens in the meantime? Right? We call that the kingdom of God. That kingdom of God is not where you go when you die, it is where you live. So you go to heaven when you die, the kingdom is how you live. And many of us, we're so focused on later, we regret or we neglect that the kingdom of God is now. Friends, I'll tell you this. Eternal life doesn't begin the moment you die. It begins the moment you meet Jesus. Because that's when you enter into the kingdom of Heaven is later. The kingdom. Well, that's what God wants to do in your life right now. And I think that so many of us, we miss out on what God actually wants to do in our lives because we live for the later whenever God's vision for our life is in the now. That we'll say, okay, I'll, I'll worry about those things later. I'll, I'll read my Bible later. I'll, I'll, I'll pray later. I'll join a community group I'll be on the surf team. I'll go to grow class. I'll connect. I'll become a member. I'll do those things later. What time does church start? 11.15? I wonder if I can get there a little bit later because we're later people. And, and, and what God wants to do in our life, we miss out on because we live in the later when Jesus' vision for your life is now. 
that the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is at here, that God's God's rule and reign wants to break forth into your life, to be made evident, to be made tangible, to be made visible in you and through you, that the kingdom of God is now. Don't wait for later. When he has given it to you now, there is no later because the kingdom of God is for you now. You need to have a vision for your life. And not just anything, you need to have the king's vision, the right vision, Jesus' vision. What does Jesus want to do? What does Jesus want to accomplish? What is Jesus calling you to do? How is Jesus telling you to live? The kingdom of God is the way in which you and I are to live because that is the reason that Jesus has come. So it starts with the kingdom and this kingdom vision. But then it moves into Jesus calling the right people. These are the first people to follow Jesus. Today we call them disciples, followers. We would call those of us in the room Christians. These are the first people who follow Jesus. These are the first people to to catch a glimpse, to be able to give something towards this big kingdom vision. These are the first people who follow Jesus. This is where we come from. Today there's 3.5 billion of us around the world, but on this day, when Jesus begins, there was four That Christianity starts with four people. And it grows to what we see today. So where did it come from? How did it get started? Here's what Mark tells us. Passing along beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting his net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately, that's Mark's favorite word. 42 times in the book of Mark, He says the word immediately, 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 right? 14 times elsewhere in the New Testament, we see that word. But in Mark's gospel, it's 42 times because Mark is in a hurry. Mark doesn't pull any punches. Mark doesn't hold anything back. Mark's going to tell you exactly the way that it is because he wants you to know who Jesus is and how people respond to him. And Mark says on two occasions, immediately, there's an urgency, there's a obedience, there's an immediacy when it comes to this call that Jesus gives them. So he says, immediately, they left their nets and they followed him. And going on for a little while further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, who were near the boats and mending their nets. And immediately he called them and their father, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. I want you to notice here just how exceedingly personal Jesus' call is. See, up until this point, Jesus, he's been traveling and teaching. He's probably built a little bit of a crowd. People know who he is. His reputation's got out. He's been doing his ministry over in Judea. People understand. And he's walking along the Sea of Galilee, along the, sh- the shore. He had a crowd. He could have called out to the whole crowd. He could have said, hey, all of you, follow me. He could have said that. He could, have, he could have looked over in this section over here. Okay, one, two, three, four, five. Not you. Okay, you, okay. All right, follow me. Right? No, 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 not, not you again. Okay, follow me. He could have done that. He could have looked to those in the back and says, look, hey, I see y'all. I know you snuck in and don't think anybody see you, but I see you. Hey, you guys, follow me. He could have said, hey, who, who went to Bible college? Right, who's got a master's degree, went to seminary? Okay, okay, yeah, good. I want all of you to follow me, but that's not what he does. That he doesn't give a vague and general call. 
It's a personal call. That he calls them by name. He says, Simon, Andrew, follow me. He says, James, John, follow me. It's a very personal call. And this is the same way in which Jesus still calls us. That he has a very personal call on our lives. When Jesus enters in and he interrupts us and he, he comes to us and he calls us, it's a very personal call. He says, Ginger, follow me. Brandon, follow me. He says, Kiara, follow me. Brandon, Bo, JC, follow me. Quinn, follow me. It's personal. It's not some vague general out there, but it's a personal call. That he comes to each one of us and he calls us personally. It's the same way that Jesus does. But I want you to see that it's not only a call, it's also a command. Because there is a question mark after follow me. He's not like, follow me. He doesn't say, check yes or no if you want to follow me. He doesn't send you a planning center, accept or decline, follow me. Right? He's not over and it's like, hey, you know, I was wondering if you guys would want to follow me. Oh, you have plans? Don't worry about it. Oh, you still got to finish work? Okay, you got to go home. You got to get some things in order. You need to pray about it. Give it a week. Okay, well, I'm just going to be sitting over here. And then maybe when you're ready and things are convenient and you got all of your life in order, then you can come follow me. No. Jesus says, now, follow me. They're not later people. Now. This is your moment. This is your chance. This is your call. This is your command. He says to follow me. And this is a great picture of what radical obedience looks like. That these men, they, they left everything. They laid it down. They followed after him. They didn't know what to expect. They didn't know what was coming next. They just had this opportunity to give their lives to something. And they risked. And they stepped out in faith. And they followed Jesus. But I want you to see that it's not just, it's not just the, the way that Jesus calls, but it's actually the who Jesus calls. That's what I find so fascinating, that Jesus, he doesn't call them because they went to the best schools or they're the best educated. In fact, later we see that Simon Peter, they say, he's not very educated. He's like, that's not nice. I went to public school, but I did my best. Right? He's not educated. They're not rich. They're fishermen. They don't have the best reputations. They're probably covered in fish guts. And they're dirty and they're nasty and they're grimy and they say things that make their mother blush. Right? They don't have, they're not popular. They're not athletes and rock stars and CEOs or celebrities. They don't have their own you know, reality television show. Right? They're not popular. They don't have anything that you and I would admire or aspire towards. They live just basic, ordinary, standard, first century, working class, Jewish fishermen lives. There's nothing special about these guys. Yet Jesus still calls them. And when he says, he doesn't say, go home. He doesn't tell them, go home. You know, make sure get all of your affairs in order. Ask your wife, see if she thinks it's okay. He doesn't say, brush up on your Hebrew, take a couple of classes, and then you can come follow me. No, Jesus simply calls command, says, follow me. And they do it. This is amazing to me. How many of you, if you wanted to start a revolution, if you want to start a movement that would change the world forever, how many of you? would go down to the docks and find four people with fishing poles? Probably not. 
Like, that's not where you start to change the world, right? Just, just down there, right? It's in the river. You're like, oh, okay, let's just, let's just do this, right? No, that's probably not where you would start or begin. But that's exactly what Jesus does. And that's how Jesus calls you. That there was nothing in you that merited his call to you. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. But he still comes to you personally, relationally. And he says to follow me. One of the best parts of my job, week in, week out, I see it all the time. One of the best parts of being a pastor is to see people take their first steps in following Jesus. Do you remember where you were? Do you remember who you were? Do you remember what was happening in your life? The day that you said yes to following Jesus, do you remember that moment? I remember mine. I was 20 years old. That I was raised in church, had praying grandparents who loved the Lord. They would drag me there every single Sunday. But at about the age of 15, I was like, I don't really believe this. And then I, and then I graduated from, from church. I went off, did my own thing. A couple of years go by, I find myself just, just a total wreck, a mess, that I'm an alcoholic, I'm, I'm strung out on drugs, that I'm hopeless and homeless, living out of the backseat of my car, this DIY, drunk, depressed, punk kid. I mean, my life was just jacked. And then I met a pretty girl, and she invited me to church. She was cute, so I decided I would go. That Sunday, I gave my life to Jesus. Three years later, I married that girl. Twelve years later, here I am as your pastor. That's my story. And there are some people that your stories are very similar to that. God's doing something amazing. I'm not sure if, you, if you've recognized this or had opportunities to meet new people in our church, but God's bringing people in our church from, from addictions and alcoholism and, and drug abuse and physical abuse. And God is using all of those things. And Jesus is calling those people to himself. That, that there are people in our church who, who are coming in from anxiety and depression and bipolar and eating disorders. And, and Jesus is using those things and he is calling them unto himself. We have people coming from backgrounds of, of pagan, witchcraft, wicked, false religions and, I, and I, idolatry. And Jesus is using that to call them to himself. That Jesus is doing something amazing in the life of our church. Those who are just walking through divorce and they're struggling and they're hurting and Jesus is meeting them in that divorce and he is using that to call them to himself. We have college students who are coming to faith because they want to believe in, they want to belong to something that is bigger and give their lives to something greater. And Jesus is using that call people to himself, that he still calls. And some people in this room, you have amazing stories every single week. I hear these testimonies about just like, here's who I was, here's what Jesus is doing. He's changed my life forever. And I'm like, that is incredible. But others of you, you have very boring testimonies. That you hear all these stories, and you're like, wow, that's really cool. My story doesn't look like that, though. You're like, you're like oh, I have a boring testimony, right? Because I never went to rehab. I never did drugs. I never stabbed a guy. I never, I never drank. I never smoked a cigarette, although I found one on the side of the street one time. I picked it up, but it was covered in lipstick. I thought that was gross. So immediately, I had some Germex. Does that count? You're like, no, that doesn't count. You're like, dang it. I have a very boring testimony. You're like, oh, man, my mom loves Jesus. My dad loves Jesus. I love Jesus. Right? Let's just go kick rocks because I don't have a very cool story. I have a, I have a boring testimony. Let me tell you this. For those of you who have a boring testimony, praise God. 
Praise God for a boring testimony. Never despise having a boring testimony. How many of you are parents? Every parent's prayer, Lord, please give my kid a boring testimony. That's every single parent's prayer. Like, don't let him go to rehab. Don't let him stab the guy. Okay, that's every parent's, that's every parent's prayer. My prayer for my little girl every single night when we have dinner is, Lord, fill her with the Holy Spirit at a young age. Let her know who Jesus is, grow up, be a worshiper, and make a difference in the world. I pray that over my little girl every single night for dinner because I want her to have the boring testimony. My mom loved Jesus. My dad loves Jesus. I was a part of a good Jesus-loving, Bible-preaching, spirit-filled church. I grew up, graduated, met a guy. He loved Jesus. And then we had a couple of kids and grandkids. Then I died, and then I met Jesus. Like, that's, that's the testimony I want from my little girl parents. Amen? Amen. So don't feel bad about having a boring testimony. When you read the Bible, there's some people in here, they have amazing testimonies. Like in Mark, you're going to come across it, and you got a guy who gets a demon cast out of him, right? and then you have people who, who have healings and miracles. I mean, there's some amazing testimonies. You have people who get a prophetic word, and they believe. You have, you have these great, crazy moments like the Apostle Paul. I mean, he literally gets beat up by Jesus. Jesus comes, punches him in the face, knocks him off his horse, and blinds the guy. He hit him so hard, he blinded him, right? That's an incredible testimony, right? And then he's blinded. An old man named Ananias has to pray for him. Scales fall off his eyes. He wakes up and writes two-thirds of the New Testament. You're like, that's an incredible testimony, right? You have another guy who, like, teleports. You're like, seriously? Like, where's the teleport guy? Like, just beam me up. Jesus, he's gone. Some people, they get angels. When you read the Bible, you're like, Oh my gosh, this is an amazing testimony. You see these great stories of people meeting Jesus. And then you see these guys. They're like, how did you meet Jesus? He beat me up. How did you meet Jesus? I got an angel. Dude, teleported. How did you meet Jesus? I was fishing. They're like, what? That's it? You're like, yep, me and some buddies, we were down, we were down fishing, we we're at work, and then Jesus showed up. That's about it. Like, oh, okay. Are you sure you didn't stab? No, nope, no, nope, never did that. Right? I was just fishing. That's where I met Jesus. But I want you to see that Jesus, he can take the most ordinary of things and he can do something extraordinary with them. That Jesus, he would come to these four filthy fishermen who had nothing that we would look to, that we would long for, that we would want to model ourselves after. These are basic, ordinary, standard people that one act of obedience to two words single-handedly changed the world forever. That God took what was ordinary and he used it to do something extraordinary. So don't ever despise your story. So let me introduce you to these four men. These four men who would change the world, they're known as disciples. We call them followers. Christianity today, there's three billion of us, but on this day, there was four. And over, as you read through it, there's going to be 12 total, but these are the core team. These are the launch team. This is the community group that Jesus is in. I find it interesting that the first thing that Jesus did as he goes into ministry was start a community group. Okay. Just a little shameless plug there. The first thing that Jesus did, he was... He got into a community group. And so this is the first, this is the first disciples. And so I want to introduce you to him because they're going to come up over and over again through the gospel of Mark. The first way we meet, his name is Simon. Elsewhere it's called Peter because whenever Jesus 
meets him, he changes his name, which is kind of weird if you think about it. You're like, hey, I met you for the first time. What's your name? It's, it's Tom. No, it's not. It's Hank. You're like, what? Oh, that's eh, whatever. I'll roll with it. That's who Peter was. That's what Simon Peter, that's his first encounter with Jesus. And Simon is mentioned first because he is the first to meet Jesus. He was the first um, called, and he is actually the first among equals when it comes to the disciples. So, so he is the leader of the disciples. And, and, and Peter, he, he, he just keeps jacking up all over, all over the story. Right? He can't do anything right. Peter, he's a mess. That he keeps putting his foot in his mouth. He says things he shouldn't say. He does things that he shouldn't do. I mean, he's the first person who professed that Jesus is the Christ. And then a couple of verses later, Jesus gives him another nickname. He calls him Satan. You're like, yeah, that's probably not a very good day because that's what Peter is. I mean, he, he couldn't do anything. Right? I mean, he tried to walk on water. He trips, he falls, he almost drowns. Right? He, he denies Jesus. He runs away from a little girl. I mean, he can't do anything. That's Peter's story. But Peter keeps following Jesus. Some of you, that's where you're at. You keep making mistakes, but you need to keep following Jesus. Despite the faults, the failures, and the flaws, Peter keeps following Jesus. And then something amazing happens. That, that after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, his ascension into heaven, the church is gathered together for a prayer meeting. And as they are praying, the Holy Spirit descends. Peter gets filled with the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, he stands up and he preaches, and he proclaims, and he preaches the first sermon of the first church. And Peter says, repent and believe. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's the same message Jesus preached for his first sermon. See, Peter learned from Jesus, and he did what he saw his Lord and Savior Jesus do. And Peter got the privilege to stand and to preach the very first sermon, and the church explodes to 3,000 people, from 4 to 120 to 3,000 in a single day. And as the church explodes with growth, Peter becomes the pastor, and he is a, an amazing preacher. He goes forward, he writes two other books of the Bible bearing his name, that he preaches crusades to both Gentiles and to Jewish people, and the word gets out about Peter, and Peter gets arrested, Peter gets thrown into prison. And they go to kill Peter and they say, you need to deny Christ. That you need to deny Christ. You need to stop preaching Christ. And if you do not deny him, we will kill you. And he says, I've already denied him once. Deny him once, shame on me. If I deny him twice, shame on you. You're going to have to kill me. And so they arrest him and they go to crucify him. But before he says, he says, wait, wait, wait. I'm not worthy to die in the same manner of my Lord and Savior. So you're going to have to crucify me upside down. And so upside down, they hung Peter, and he gave his life. That Peter plants and starts the church. That Peter takes the gospel all across the ancient world. And Peter dies a martyr's death, all because of two simple words. To follow me, the world was changed. The second one we meet is actually his brother named Andrew. Now, Andrew, Andrew's more behind the scenes. Peter, he's the leader. Andrew, he's behind scenes. Peter, he's, he's loudmouth. Right? Andrew, he's humble. He's, he's very quiet. Andrew's the guy who loves to serve. We don't have a whole lot about Andrew, but, but the, his big moment comes whenever Jesus is feeding the 5,000. You guys are familiar with the story where Jesus feeds the 5,000. 5, he's been preaching for a couple of days. This sermon's long. How about a three-day-long sermon? That's Jesus, right? So Jesus comes preaching, and, and it's about three days. People are hungry. There is no food. And so Jesus is like, well, we need to feed these people. 
And they're like, well, that sounds like a great idea, but how? We don't have any money and we don't have any food. And she's like, you, you guys can figure it out. And then Andrew comes up with a plan. He's like, hey, Jesus, I met this little boy. He's got a few fish sticks and a cracker. I think we can make it happen. And so Jesus prays and multiplies it and feeds the 5,000 people. That's because of Andrew's faith. That Andrew saw a need, he met a need, that he believed that Jesus could do it. And because of Andrew's faith and his heart for serving, we have a great testimony and example because that's who Andrew is, that he's humble and he loves to serve and he has a big faith. Church history tells us that Andrew, he goes on, he becomes a, a missionary and that he travels and he takes the gospel to, to Russia where he plants a church, he pastors for 20 years and then the Roman Empire comes and they arrest him and they go to kill him and Andrew dies a martyr's death. And Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us about Andrew's story. And whenever I was a new Christian, I read this and I was like, oh my gosh, this, these guys, they must have known Jesus in a way that, that I, I must have missed. Because I was a new Christian, I'm reading this, and his last words and what he said before he died and how he lived his life. Just, just listen to this. Here's what it says about Andrew. His final words, I would not preach the honor and the glory of the cross if I feared death on a cross. And they arrested him and crucified him. And here is his dying breath, his final words. O cross, most welcomed and long anticipated. I come to you with a willing mind, with a joy and a desire, since I am a follower and a student of the one who died on you. I have always loved you, and I have sought to embrace you. That's the way that Andrew lived his life. That Andrew goes from a filthy fisherman to a faithful missionary. He dies a martyr's death and takes the gospel to the furthest corner of the world because of two simple words. Follow me. The next one we meet is a man named James. Now, this is the brother of John. So, so they're brothers, and Jesus actually gives him a nickname as well. He calls him the Sons of Thunder. Do you think that sounds cool? That's because it is. He calls him the son. That's like a WWE name, isn't it? It's like the tag team wrestlers, the Sons of Thunder, because that's exactly what James and John were. I mean, they were audacious. They were crazy. They were insane. And they would say things, and you're just like, seriously? Like, if you're reading through, you're like, ah, why? I mean, I, I wouldn't even say that. That's, that's, that's quite. See, one time James comes up to Jesus and he's like, hey, Jesus, you're the king. And there's that whole kingdom thing. That's all great. Um, when that happens, hey, can I sit on your throne? Like, that's James. I mean, that's a very bold thing to ask. Can I sit in your seat, Jesus? And that's who James is. And James, he's very bold. He's very audacious. And James is actually the best of the preachers. We have a couple of sermons from James throughout the book of Acts. And through his preaching, through his teaching, and through his ministry, many people get saved. And, and he actually catches the attention of Herod Agrippa, which is the, the false leader during that time period. And Herod Agrippa, he actually murders James. That James is the first of the apostles to be murdered. But his life had a significant impact on the first church. And here's what church historians say about the life of James. Here's, here's how it says, James lived his life to the full. And when the time came, he bore himself with such grace and fortitude that even his accusers and a former who attended the trial and the execution, they were so touched that they rushed away from the scene of James' death and they immediately joined the disciples. That at his death, even the people who were accusing him because of his love, because of his grace, because of his teachings of Jesus, even those who brought him to die immediately left the crowd and became Christians. 
that up until the last breath, his dying breath, James is still following and leading people to Jesus because of two words. Follow me. The last one we meet is a man named John. John's actually the youngest of the group. John, commentator, says about 16 years old. So he should still be in youth group, right? I mean, he should still be in high school. But here he is. He's working a job with his brother James and John and, and Simon and Andrew. And John becomes Jesus' best friend. He becomes Jesus' nearest and dearest disciple and follower. We call him the John the Beloved because he is the one that the Lord loved. That's who John is. And everything we learn about John, we do so at the foot of the cross. And that is Jesus' last day. He is dying for the sins of the world. He is hanging on the cross. He has been abandoned and betrayed and turned away from every single person. But there's a couple of people, his mother, a few of the ladies, and John. And Jesus turns to John on the cross. says, take care of my mom. That's who John is. That's how much Jesus trusted John. That's how much John loved Jesus. Everything you need to know about John, you can learn right there at the foot of the cross. Because John loved the Lord, and John would follow the Lord. So John, he takes care of Mary, and you see them in the book of Acts as the church is growing, and Mary and, his, and the other ladies are right there, and John's right by their side, and the church grows, and John continues to grow. And he becomes a prominent leader in the very first church. He writes five books of the Bible, five books of the Bible. John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. He's a busy dude. And as he's leading the church and writing books of the Bible, they arrest him, they want to kill him, and so they boil him alive in oil. He is boiled in oil, and he didn't die. His body was torn and scarred and deformed, and his skin hanging off his frame as it as he didn't die. And so they can't kill him, so they decide they're just going to get rid of him. So they exile him to a place in Patmos. And for several years, he's on this island where he actually wrote another book of the Bible. And then they send him back home, and he died as an old man. He's the only apostle not to die a martyr's death, that he meets Jesus as a young man. And then he loves Jesus through his whole life. He dies as an old man, and then he gets to see Jesus again. John changed the world. And so, so much so that Martin Luther, the great reformer, says that, that if all of Christianity was to be destroyed, that if you were to burn every single book of the Bible and one copy of the Gospel of John remained, that would still be enough for Christianity to flourish and for the church to continue to grow because that's how significant and important this man named John is. John changed the world because of two words, follow me. So why do I tell you their story? I tell you their story because I want you to consider your story. Think about you. Think about who you were, where you were. You were no different than these guys. That, that you were no different. These were just ordinary people. They weren't special. They didn't have an education. They didn't have experience. They didn't have money. They didn't have reputation. They weren't popular. They didn't have all of these things that we say that we need. They didn't have any of those things. Here's the only thing they had. They had two words, follow me, and they said yes. Two words to change the world. Ordinary men with one act of extraordinary obedience. And this world has never been the same again. I tell you their story because I want you to consider your story. 
Who were you? Where were you? What were you doing when Jesus called you? You never know what your life is going to be when you follow Jesus. What would it look like for you to follow Jesus in your life, in your everyday life? For you to follow Jesus, those of you who are in college or in school, what if you followed Jesus there? That instead of going to college to get a degree, what if you went to make disciples? What would it look like for you to follow Jesus at your job? Instead of working for a paycheck, if you worked for a purpose? What would it look like for, for those of us with families, mothers and fathers, for us to follow Jesus with our families? Instead of just trying to raise successful kids, what if we raised faithful kingdom kids? For those of us who are married, husbands and wives, what if we began to see marriage as our greatest ministry and that the dinner table is where the kingdom of God resides? What would it look like for us to see the city of Beaumont, not as just boring, but as our sea of Galilee and that God has called us to be fishers of men in this city and that he can take the most ordinary, mundane, trivial experiences and turn them into exciting Kingdom opportunities, because that's who Jesus is, and that's what Jesus does, and that's what it means for us to follow him. How would your life look any different if you follow Jesus? See, it starts with the vision. You need to have a vision for your life. You need to have Jesus' vision for your life. The kingdom of God made evident in the world around us. So you need to have the right people. Are you the person in which Jesus calls? When Jesus calls, are you that person? But most importantly, more importantly, you need to have the right leader because everything rises and falls on leadership. You can try and you can live a good life and do all of those good things, but apart from Jesus, it's worthless. You need to have the right leader. You need to have the perfect leader. You need to have the, the king you need to have Jesus, and so Jesus is our leader, and he's the one that we follow. I've been following Jesus for 12 years now. There's a couple of things that I can tell you, but the thing that I've learned the most about following Jesus is this. Jesus is terrible at following me. Has anybody else noticed that? Anybody else experienced Okay, just me? Yeah, Jesus is terrible. At, uh, maybe he's good at following you. I don't know, but he's terrible at following me. Jesus doesn't. I keep telling Jesus what to do. And he doesn't do it. I'm like, I'm like, Jesus, hey, you need to follow me over here. And Jesus is like, I don't follow. Right? I was like, Jesus, why don't you do what I tell you to do? And he's like, that's funny. I was thinking the same thing about you. Because I keep telling you to do things and you don't, don't do that. That's because Jesus is not the follower. We are the followers. Jesus is the leader. That's the deal. Now here's the big soul-crushing question that you all knew was coming because it is redemption and this is inevitable. And so, so here it is. What was their response? Jesus calls them. He says, Simon, Andrew, James, John, follow me. What was their response? Here's what it says in verse 18. And immediately they dropped their nets and they followed him. Their response was to immediately follow him. When Jesus calls, what's your response? Do you follow Jesus immediately? With urgency. Do you follow him with expectancy? When Jesus calls, do you follow him immediately? What is your response? Or should I say, what is your excuse? Because that's exactly what it is. All of its excuses. And we can think they're really good excuses. And we can come up with all the different reasons 
not responses, they're really just excuses. And we have lists of, of reasons and, and lists of things and lists of all of the we come up with as to why we don't do what we know we're supposed to do when Jesus calls us, but we still don't do it because we're still those later people. We're not the now people, we're still the later people. So when Jesus calls, what is our response? And I was really thinking and I was wondering about this because here we are 2,000 years later as a church. People love Jesus. People serve Jesus. I truly believe that. But why don't we see this type of response in the church today? And then I was thinking about it, and here's what I think it is. I think it's because we don't actually know who Jesus is. That we have a Jesus in our own mind. We have a Jesus of our own ideas and our own understanding. We have a Jesus of our own making that we have 21st century lens and we interpret this book according to our perceptions and it's divorced of the Jesus of the scriptures. We have just pulled him out and remade him and fashioned him according to our own agendas. But Jesus will not be co-opted for your agenda because he is on his own kingdom agenda. There is no Jesus like we make him out to be because Mark knows something about him that we seem to have missed. That according to Mark, there is no easy believer Jesus. There is no Jesus that you can come to whenever you want, whenever you want, and he's just going to give you a hug, pat you on the back, tell you everything's going to be okay, and never ask you to do anything difficult, and never expect anything hard of you, and never expect you to change. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. You're not going to come to Jesus and co-opt him for your... There is no Time Magazine Jesus. There is no whitewashed Blonde hair, blue-eyed Jesus. There is no Republican Jesus. There is no Democrat Jesus. There is no American Jesus. There is no storybook Bible Jesus. There is only the Jesus of the Scriptures. Because when Mark sees Jesus, he's a man coming from Galilee. And he is preaching. And he is proclaiming. And he is saying, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus comes, according to Mark, when you see him for who he is and what he says and what he does, the only reasonable, rational, logical response for every single person in this room is to drop everything and follow after him. No questions, no holding back, no turning back. You get out the boat and you follow him. When you see Jesus, the way that Mark sees him, you know who he is. And I think one of the reasons that you struggle to follow Jesus, your biggest problem is not because the pressures of this world are too great, but your perception of Jesus is too small. Your Jesus is too small. That's why you have your problems. Because your Jesus is too small. That's why you don't follow. Your Jesus is too small. That's why you keep wrestling with the same things over and over again because your Jesus is too small. Who wants to follow a small Jesus? That's why we wrestle. That's why we struggle because we don't know who Jesus actually is. We don't know the Jesus of the Bible because when you see him like Mark does, you'll see in the first 20 verses, Mark gives us nine characteristics, titles, and attributes about who Jesus is. Then when you see Jesus like this, from this lens, from this perspective, everything changes. The first thing he tells us is that Jesus is our Savior. Mark 1.1, that word Jesus literally means the one who saves. Your greatest problem is your sin. 
It's what holds you. It's what hinders you. It's what binds you. It's what robs you and steals you. It's what destroys you. Your greatest problem is your sin. And there is nothing you can do to take care of that problem. So Jesus comes. And Jesus lives the perfect life, the life you could not live. He dies the painful death, the death for your sin. He goes to that cross in your place. He ransoms, he rescues, he redeems, he gives you a right relationship with God because Jesus is our Savior. Mark 1.1, again, he tells us that Jesus is God, that he is the same essence and quality, that he is the same stuff, that he is, he is of dignity and value that Jesus is God, humbly entered in human history to live the life just like you and I. He was born as we were born, that he breathed as we breathed, that he suffered as we suffered, that he died as we died, so that by him, to him, for him, through him, we might live a life with him because Jesus is God. Number three, says Jesus is Lord. Some of you want Jesus as your Savior, but you don't want him as your Lord. You can't have one without the other. He's either your Lord and your Savior, or he's neither. Jesus is Lord. That word means he is the boss, that he is in charge, that he is in command, that what he says is what we do, that when he speaks, that's what we listen to. When he moves, everything obeys. From the angels to the demons, from the waves to the wind, from sickness and disease to every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Number four, he says that Jesus is mighty. There is no one greater than Jesus. There is nothing higher than Jesus. There is nothing besides Jesus. That Jesus alone is worthy. That Jesus alone is holy. That Jesus alone deserves the glory because Jesus is mighty. Number five, he says he is the anointed one. That the Holy Spirit descends on him at his baptism, revealing his power. That he preaches with power. He teaches with power. He heals with power because he is the chosen one. He is the only one. He is the anointed one of God. Number six, he's the son of God. The essence, the nature, the quality, the substance, the source. He is one with God because he is the son of God. And as the son, our big brother Jesus, he comes to make a way, to provide a way, to open a way so that you and I, we can become sons and daughters and the children of God. Because Jesus is the Son of God. Number seven, we see that he is a warrior. That he comes and he does battle with Satan, the the dragon, the serpent, the tempter, the deceiver. And he emerges victorious. He takes the battle to his own battleground. He cuts serpent's head off. He overcomes the temptation, conquering Satan, sin, hell, death, and the grave. You need to see Jesus as your great warrior. He's also our king. He comes as a king, and he brings a kingdom. He has authority. He has dominion. He has power, because Jesus is the king. And all this culminates into number nine, that Jesus is the leader, that Jesus is calling you to follow me. Your king is calling you to follow me. And then when this Jesus calls you, the only thing left for you to do is get out that boat and follow him. When you see Jesus for who he is, what he says, what he does, when you have a big vision of a big Jesus, anything is possible. Follow those two words. Follow me. Friends, whatever you are worried about, it's not bigger than Jesus. Whatever you are concerned about, 
It is not bigger than Jesus. Whatever you are hoping in, whatever you are believing in, whatever you are giving yourself to, it is not bigger than Jesus. Whatever is hindering you, whatever is holding you back, whatever sin, whatever shame, whatever is separating you, I can assure you this, it is not bigger than Jesus. Whatever you are giving yourself to, whatever books you have read, whatever your philosophy professor has told you, whatever lies you have believed, I can tell you this, it is not more important than Jesus. In 2,000 years, everything that you have believed and hoped, given yourself to, will be destroyed. It will be burned. It will be ash. It will be dirt. It will be dust. It will be rubble. But the church of Jesus Christ will still be here. And the kingdom of God will still be marching forward. That nations and empires will come and go. That philosophies and ideologies will be destroyed. That, that universities and that all things that we hope and trust and believe in apart from Jesus will be devastated. But the church of Jesus Christ, you and me and everyone who obeys this call to follow Jesus, we will still be here. That we will be in a kingdom by our king as God's people singing God's praise in God's places because his kingdom knows no end. And this is the king that's calling you today. He says, follow me. So we have a chance to respond. They responded immediately. Don't hold back. Don't be a later when God has called you for the kingdom of God now. Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at the gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us for one of our two services at 9.30 or 11.15 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are welcome too. We are Redemption, and we would love to meet you.